Good afternoon, everybody. Hope you guys enjoyed a, a lunch, and uh, I'm going to try to make sure I don't set you off to snooze land, uh, despite the jet lag and so forth. In case you're wondering what's going outside, I'm saving you from losing money from the casinos right now. So, um, so anyhow, th this afternoon we're going to talk a little bit um, about um, uh, when to, to, to refer to an interventional pain physician. Uh, such as myself. I'm an interventional pain physician from New Jersey. I practice in a suburban area. Uh, my background is in anesthesiology. Um, for those that were interested in, in neuromodulation or electroceuticals, I uh, talked a little bit about that this morning. Uh, but today, it's gonna, to this afternoon, we're going to do a little bit different. We're going to talk about um, some of the things that, that would, you know, would want to make you consider other options for your patients. And considering this meeting, we have a very eclectic group of uh, people who are here uh, in the front, forefront of treating chronic pain. So without further ado, here are my disclosures. Um, I am very much interested in neuromodulation, and I work with various kind of companies uh, in research, and, and I get grant uh, support from them. So today we're going to try to talk about uh, a little review of the history of pain medicine, some of the current challenges in treating chronic pain today, I'm sure you guys deal with it. We all deal with it on a regular basis when we're not here at meetings. Uh, describe some of the roles of interve interventional pain. What does it really mean to be an interventional pain uh, specialist, or uh, what does IPM mean? Uh, how to differentiate uh, who does what? It's such a, uh, a narrow focus these days where it's hard for us to even figure out what our, our colleagues do uh, in medicine and explain or review some of the things that make, may, may want to make you uh, consider these options for your patients. And we're going to go through some case studies just to kind of stir up some, 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 some uh, controversy and maybe a dis little bit of discussion on, on so forth. Uh, this is kind of a review of what I just said, uh, but this is something that they require for, for CME purposes. So pain, um, that's why we're here. We're here for pain week. Uh, but often we always forget that there's um, a large emotional component to pain. And that's what the Inter International Society on Study of Pain uh, describes that as uh, there's just not a sensory component but an emotional component. So always remember that um, you know, when in terms of treating patients with chronic pain, uh, it takes more than just a needle and it takes more than just a pill. Sometimes it takes a little bit of both plus a psychologist, plus a therapist, uh, a physical therapist uh, in, in, in the in the private practice world, um, I've developed uh, relationships with these folks. And for, for those that work in a, an academic institution, you have the luxury of having all these departments at your fingertips. So going way back, um, kind of describing how we sense pain and how we experience pain, more than 300 years ago, this is the Cartesian model of describing pain. So if you stepped your, step, stubbed your toe or put your foot in a hot fire, uh, something would ring a pull on a string that would go all the way up to your brain and ring something in your brain that says, ow, this hurts. It's not very far from what we normally um, see as, as pain transmission today, uh, but more evolved, obviously, and we're still understanding that. Relieving pain, analgesia. Uh, 3,000 years ago, or more than 3,000 years, Sumerians first cultivated the poppy seed um, and utilized opium uh, to treat pain. In fact, in Homer's Odyssey, uh, Helen of Troy used it to treat her uh, sadness or sorrows for, for the loss of, tro for the loss of uh, uh, absence of Odysseus. Other historical aspects of pain, so this is ancient auricular acupuncture. Uh, 
in the Han Dynasty, uh, as well as in, in um, Persian surgical texts of, of cauterizing uh, the external ear uh, to treat migraine headaches. So the phenomenon of pain has been around for, for, for centuries or eons and beginning of time, but modern-day uh, analgesia, for an anesthesiologist, I would consider the, 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 the introduction of ether. So this picture was uh, in the Mass General uh, Ether Dome, the first time the ether was used for a surgical procedure. So today, chronic pain uh, is, is a large health problem. Um, one in 10 Americans suffer from chronic pain. It, it causes a large economic impact, loss of productivity, and without a doubt, everyone here knows and probably are tired of me saying this problem with opiate crisis, uh, but it is the number one health crisis in, in, in our country. In terms of uh, other numbers, 10% uh, um, or uh, 25 million Americans suffer from pain on an everyday basis. It is a sign of overall poor health. Um, So this is the latest data. Um, the, 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 the prescription medication deaths are still going up, and sales have slowly declined. And in 2017, I don't know if you guys just read recently in the New York Times, uh, 72,000 people died last year uh, from opiate-related uh, deaths. That's including um, heroin and so forth. So what are the things that we do? Well, I'm proud that I'm part of a, a society, the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, uh, and we lobby on behalf of our patients and our specialty. Uh, this is a picture in Capitol Hill with, with, with Dr. Manchikanti and, and Jerome Adams, the uh, Surgeon General, on finding better ways to treat pain and to curb the opiate crisis. And right now, uh, there are less than 10% of people receiving treatment for, for opiate addiction. So the, there's a new opiate task force. Uh, there's uh, uh, obviously uh, uh, additional grants that are being donated or invested into treatment of, of, of patients who are in need of help. Um, and interventional pain medicine offers an alternative solution, uh, which is non-opiate-based, uh, non-medication-based. So this is our colleague and friend. She's also an anesthesiologist. Um, uh, Vanilla Singh, who's been named to that task force, and their strategies are very simple and very close to, to our strategy. So above, I put, you know, the task force strategy, better addiction prevention, better data, uh, better pain management. This is what we all do here. Uh, better targeting uh, overdose, how to treat overdose when we see it, and, and to obtain better research. Uh, and then bottom, this is pain week's, uh, uh, I guess, um, model or, 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 or goal is to be the, the educational resource for practitioners, everyone here, who are on the front, for, forefront of treating pain. So in order for us to help with this crisis, we have to be able to identify what the problem is, be able to treat it, uh, and to prevent further uh, problems with, with, with opioids. What are the common problems? Well, obviously low back pain, chronic back pain. Headaches happens to be um, uh, within the top five, and neck and facial pain follow. So how have pain medicine evolved? So I showed this earlier as well, but this is always remind us that uh, this is a continuum of care and things change. So back when this uh, pain treatment ladder was formed uh, by the WHO, uh, this was to treat cancer pain. Uh, but the steps have changed, and I would argue that these steps need to change further. 
Uh, Long-term opioids still has a role, but not necessarily um, early in the, in the continuum. Interventions like neuromodulation uh, ha have been uh, utilized, and I would argue that should be utilized earlier in the treatment option uh, pathways. So just as neuromodulation has evolved, I showed this this morning as well, we talked about uh, how things have improved over the years and how uh, devices have been smaller, better, uh, and the data has become more um, uh, convincing. The evolution of opiate therapy has changed. On top, this is an actual prescribed medication. It was, it was made by Bayer, uh, heroin. Uh, that certainly changed over the years, uh, and it was um, uh, heroin was actually made f from a pharmaceutical basis uh, to, to fit, fit the needs for, for pain relief during World War II. So they were trying to make morphine, but ended up making heroin. Uh, the other invention that the Germans had was uh, uh, was meperidine when they were trying to make atropine. So because of the risk of tolerance, dependency, abuse. It's definitely, uh, our pendulum has swung, and the paradigms have shifted. So now we have newer guidelines. We have more strict guidelines in terms of how do we uh, treat patients with opioids more responsibly. Along the same line, neuromodulation and interventional pain medicine has evolved, and there have been newer innovations uh, that allow us to, 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 to give these devices to patients and still allow them to have an MRI. Uh, better waveforms, better targets for stimulation, newer things even like closed-loop technology that's not yet FDA-approved. Vagal nerve stimulation is another new uh, treatment option for patients suffering from chronic uh, migraine headaches, which recently became FDA-approved. Other emerging concepts in interventional pain medicine, uh, we talked about waveforms, we talked about targets, but non-invasive things like vagal nerve stimulation. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone's uh, heard or been familiar with uh, Interspinous decompression devices. Uh, these are uh, small, minimally invasive uh, procedures where we place a small um, titanium spacer in the interspinous space, uh, such as here, uh, which uh, decreases or prevents the further stenosis or further collapse of the spine in, in treating uh, neurogenic claudication of spinal stenosis. Peripheral nerve stimulation and regenerative medicine have also become new topics recently to treat chronic pain conditions. So complementary pain, pain treatment is also available. Uh, cupping was big during the Olympics when Michael Phelps had it. So I figured this was the uh, home do-it-yourself version. Um, other things like relaxation, acupuncture, chiropractic therapy, uh, meditation. Uh, I thought I'd updated that slide, but I guess not. Um, things like uh, CGRP, uh, I'm sure you, you will be hearing about it at this conference if you haven't, um, haven't heard about it for, for treatment of migraine headaches. Um, other nerve growth factor antagonists, this is something in the pipeline for chronic pain that's associated with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, sorry, osteoarthritis. Uh, and another hot topic is cannabinoids. Um, I couldn't even get into that lecture. It was so packed earlier this morning. So what is an interventional pain physician do, or what is it that we do? Uh, well, it's the application of specific drugs, medications, uh, use of nerve blocks, destruction of nerves. Sometimes we ablate or burn these nerves, uh, minimally invasive surgical procedures, uh, the infusion of medications to modify nervous system, or the use of electricity. So that's neuromodulation, uh, to, to be specific. So what is it? What is it? 
that an IPM physician um, does. Well, we recognize, we diagnose, we treat, we delegate. Uh, we're advocates for patients. We, we educate. We coordinate other specialties, neurosurgeons. We coordinate uh, physical medicine physicians. We coordinate neurologists um, and, 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 and neuropsychologists. We apply or use uh, various minimally invasive therapeutic modalities, uh, injections, nerve blocks, uh, ablative procedures, uh, some of these implantable devices. Uh, truly, the, the primary care physician of, of pain. Uh, so interventional pain medicine is a very new field, and it's sometimes confusing who is really an interventional pain physician. So the American Board of Medical Specialties recognizes it as a subspecialty. Uh, you have to have to come from four of the, the primary specialties, which is anesthesiology, neurology, psychiatry, and physical medicine. You have to do additional fellowship training. Um, you have to get an additional certificate. And you can get this through other means, through professional societies. This is where things get very muddy and, and confusing. So this is where the alphabet soup comes. So the World Institute of Pain, or WIP, offers this FIPP certification. I don't know if you've, you might have heard other physicians with this designation. This is how international physicians obtain additional training and obtain certification in, in interventional pain medicine. So if they're not trained in this country, uh, they have to go through this society. Uh, you can get additional training and certification through ASIP, which is the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. That requires both uh, classroom training, hands-on training, both um, written tests as well as um, practical examination on ac actually performing these procedures. AAPM also provides something uh, similar to that, additional training allowing physicians who come from alternative training backgrounds. But you have to be very careful. Certain uh, societies, uh, for example, this other AAPM, now called the Ameri Academy of Integrative Pain Medicine or Pain Management, um, offers additional training, but as you'll see in the fine print, which I'll show you in a minute, doesn't really guarantee or certify. Um, it's not really a, a true board certification. So the credentialing process can be very confusing. Uh, for example, uh, my state of New Jersey, in order for someone to get hospital credentials, uh, you have to be accredited by the ABMS. So you have to be one of the, the four specialties to get subspecialty training and then take the necessary uh, credentialing and certification examinations. Um, I'm going through this exactly with our two new hired physicians because they're waiting on their, their board examination so that they can get hospital credentials so that they can get certified in a, in a surgery center. So th there are differences in how you get trained to be an, an interventional pain physician. Exactly it. This... Um, this, this American Academy of sorry, this Academy of Integrative Pain Management. If you look at the fine print, this is not for certification. This is not board certification. So, for most patients, they can't tell the difference. Um, and if they can't tell the difference, and sometimes we can't tell the difference, uh, the, 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 the playing field gets very, very muddied, and uh, we're not doing our patients any, any service, and we're not doing each other any service. Uh, for example, the scope of practice can become very fuzzy. Uh, this happened in New Jersey. I don't know if anyone heard it on the news, but this anesthesiologist was performing spinal fusion surgery in a one-room surgery center without any hospital privileges, lacking formal training. He was also convicted of manslaughter in the U.K., um, 
and took a course in Korea. Not, not saying anything bad about Korean spine surgery courses, but this is probably not someone I would want to operate on my mother or my sister or my brother or my, my wife. So the IASP um, put out a task force uh, describing the qualities of a pain clinic or a pain center. It must incorporate multidisciplinary care. It must be integrative. Uh, must be comprehensive, and some include research. For example, even though I'm a private practice physician, I have about 15 FDA-approved clinical trials going on right now, um, trying to push my field and hoping to bring new options to my patients. So when do you refer to a, a patient for a specialist or an intervention? So always remember, referring somebody to a specialist is not a failure of the healthcare provider. Um, it, it's, it's, it's be, you're just allowing the patient to have additional options, having someone else set another set of eyes on them. I sometimes get confused and in and, 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 and frustration. Let some of my other colleagues, uh, my partners, see my patients because sometimes it just takes another set of eyes, another um, look into the, into the history to, to make things uh, a little bit more clear. So if you're unable to make a clear diagnosis, um, it's not a bad idea to get somebody else involved. Uh, failure of conservative treatment if you see an immediate surgical need. So for example, somebody comes in with an unstable spine, that's not for me to do any injections. That's for me to call up my neurosurgical colleagues, say, hey, can you help? Um, you want to improve patient access. So I'm a firm believer of getting all the right people on a patient's team so that they can get the best care. That means incorporating a multidisciplinary care team. And it'll involve complementary pain treatment. So uh, the, 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 the uh, physical medicine people, the, the physical therapists, the chiropractors. Uh, I even uh, send my patients to, 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 to complementary things like acupuncture. And, and you know, uh, there's a, a thing in my, in my community called float therapy. I don't know if you guys heard of it. It's almost like sensory deprivation. But it helps patients relax. And if it helps, uh, I don't see any, 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 um, any risks involved. So a chronic pain consultation should consist of these things. Um, and, and certainly this is just a list. You, know, if you can add more things to it. Uh, but it should assess um, their pain, um, look at what kind of combination therapy that they may have had. This would be a multidisciplinary approach. Definitely consider interventional options. Have to assess their risks. So if somebody's already having um, been treated with, with chronic pain medications, benzodiazepines, muscle relaxers, you always have to assess well, what is their risk in this. Are they having too much sedation? Are they having uh, behavior patterns that are not conducive of, of long-term care? Um, consider informed consent, opiate agreements. Uh, you want to have a goal-directed therapy. What is it that you're trying to achieve? Uh, if they're taking you know, I have patients taking two Vicodins a day and able to hold a full-time job, be able to interact with their families, and, and not having to use any additional medications. Um, I consider that a treatment success, not a failure. Um, and I'm happy to stand in front of any board to say this is the right thing for them to, 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 to have um, in terms of opiate treatment. That's different from somebody who takes two or three Vicodins a day and sits on their couch all day and, 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 and has no function. <clears throat> so obviously you have to and provide the appropriate amount of monitoring in terms of uh, prescription monitoring uh, services. I'm sure that's nationwide in every state almost now. Uh, urine drug screens are sometimes utilized. And bottom line is you want to consult a pain specialist early in the treatment continuum. Uh, they may not have to do anything. They may say, yep, this is what I would agree with. Continue doing what you're doing. Or I would say if this doesn't work, 
try this and maybe we can tackle the problem together by allowing to have a nerve block here, um, uh, an injection there, we would continue to, to, to care for them without having to escalate their opioids, without having to add a second or a third agent onto their medication list. You want to avoid last-minute consults or last-minute referrals, especially in the days of the new CDC guidelines. So I get calls you know, almost every other week. You know, I, I can't take care of this patient anymore because I can't prescribe them the current medication that they're being prescribed on. Well, I think you know, if, 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 if you incorporate various specialties early in the treatment algorithm, uh, these things would not have to uh, come so late in the game, if you will. So patients who are dose escalating beyond 90 milliequivalents of morphine, uh, patients who are on polypharmacy, uh, this is always a bad combination, as, as, as all of you already know. Um, patients who are starting to exhibit uh, opiate use, dis use disorder, uh, re requesting for early refills, uh, refusing uh, non-opiate treatment, and multiple emergency room visits. Uh, obviously, if you find uh, illegal drugs or substances in their urine that you didn't prescribe. Patients who are showing signs of misuse, who are too sedated. So let's kind of go through some cases. And these are real cases that I had in the last three months, and I wanted to kind of go over them and use them as uh, ways to kind of start a discussion. So this was a 58-year-old male, uh, three months status post a lumbar fusion surgery. Uh, been placed on oxycodone three times a day by the surgeon, who no longer wants to prescribe. Uh, patient instructed to follow up with their primary care physician. So their primary care physician is reluctantly prescribing them for the next you know, six to nine months post-surgery. Uh, but then the patient starts requesting uh, increased doses. They show up early for renewals and is having a hard time continuing that. And especially, they're realizing that this is a, uh, reaching on uh, doses that they don't want to handle. Uh, for a primary care physician, uh, would someone just continue to write their medications, um, start opiate agreements? I would say assess your risk, um, monitor if, if need to. Uh, this is when you have to start referring or consider um, additional help, so either uh, a pain psychologist, uh, maybe someone that may be necessary, or interventional pain physician. So even for me, when I see this patient, I would want to incorporate someone like a neuropsychologist to see what their risks are in taking opioids um, and consider other interventions. If it's been a year since they've had their spine surgery, uh, what is it happening into the spine that's causing long-term uh, pain? Is it because there's um, complications to surgery? Is it because there are uh, new findings, adjacent level disease, or there's just uh, failure in the surgery, which is fairly common, um, and then offer them interventions. So things that may come to mind, well, something that I cherish is some type of neuromodulation or intervention technique. I may not use this as first line. Some patients may uh, do great with a simple epidural steroid injection and then slowly decrease their medications. Some patients would do great with, with, with um, medial branch blocks followed by ablation because they're... they're Facet joints have been destabilized by a laminectomy. How many people have, have been you know, challenged or burdened by the fact that you know, after surgery they just can't get off their meds, and now what do you do? Right? You know, the surgeon doesn't want to continue their, their medications. Uh, the patient still has pain. Uh, there's just Right now we don't have a good system of transitioning their care from post-surgical to chronic and preventing them from becoming a chronic pain patient. And that's half our battle sometimes.
So this other patient, a 76-year-old female, she's got spinal stenosis. Uh, you've been taking care of them for a long time. They got low back pain going down the lower extremities. It only happens when they stand or walk, when they sit. Uh, they feel better when leaning on a shopping cart. Uh, they've been taking tramadol for, for, for many years and is becoming less and less effective. No prior surgery. The no normal exam, uh, all their nerve, nerve functions are fine. The motor exam is fine. Do you increase their opioids? How many of you would increase their opioids? Go up on your tramadol. Go, go to another agent that's more potent. Uh, do you refer them to a surgeon for decompressive surgery because you know they have spinal stenosis? Is there another option? Well, I think there are. Um, and this is where we have to work all together in terms of finding other options for patients. So in terms of interventions, um, I, I kind of want to incorporate this into this talk where uh, spinal stenosis has been um, a very difficult problem to treat in the last several years. Uh, but within the last three to five years, there have been excellent minimally invasive treatment options other than epidural steroid injections, which have become less favorable and, and, and less effective. So one option is uh, something like a minimally invasive lumbar decompression, uh, which is also called a mild procedure. This is where you uh, shave off the excess ligaments surrounding that level that's become hypertrophy. Uh, recent data shows uh, that this is more effective uh, at two years compared to epidural steroid injection. I don't know if this will work on the, um, on the um, let's see if this will, well, no. Can you help me out? Should be the last few slides. If there's internet connection, I should play the video on, on this. So while he's trying to pull that up, I'll, I'll talk about the other one. The other one is an interspinous inter spacer. Uh, that's been a oh, okay, great. Are you able to put the cursor over the, the right video and, and play that or no? No, we don't have internet connection. All right, so I'll just talk about it. Basically, it's a fluoroscopically guided procedure uh, where we use a trocar the size of a Starbucks straw, and we shave off the excess ligament in the epidural space. Um, how do we prevent taking a big chunk of the dura? Well, you perform an epidural gram. Essentially, you do an epidural injection, and you place contrast within the epidural space. So anything posterior to that is available for uh, decompression. And when you decrease or change the pressure volume curve, allowing the contrast to flow, you know you've dissected or taken away enough of the excess ligament or the hypertrophy ligament to decompress that level. Uh, so this is a probably 45-minute procedure uh, done as an outpatient uh, setting. On the left panel, uh, this is an indirect intraspinous decompression. Uh, you'll see that little purple a uh, fuchsia device sitting between the spines. What it does is, when patients stand and walk, uh, they, they compress the posterior elements and the ligaments buckle infold, causing a further stenosis of their spine. What this device does is it prevents, it acts like a backstop, prevents patients from further compressing that, that spinal space, um, allowing to have them to have less neurogenic claudication symptoms. Uh, this is a 30-minute procedure done through half-inch incision outpatient setting uh, for patients with moderate and 
moderate uh, spinal stenosis. Um, this is not, not for patients with severe um, or uh, patients with uh, spondylolisthesis. So other options are available. So um, there is um, additional options other than surgery uh, and, and higher doses of, 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 of uh, opioids. Let's see if we can advance this. So last case, 42-year-old, chronic diffuse pain. This is our favorite, head-to-toe pain. Uh, anxiety, depression, migraine headaches, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, low back pain. Uh, the psychiatrist prescribes him alprazolam. The rheumatologist has him on a fentanyl patch. And the primary care physician, without knowing, in all good intention, has him on a little bit of a muscle relaxer. So already I see some red flags. Um, and the rheumatologist no longer feels as comfortable prescribing the opioids. So what's going to happen now? Now, as a primary care physician, would you take, anybody take over their meds? A couple years ago, you might have. Um, do you refer to an interventional pain physician? Do you call upon a behavioral, health, a behavioral health specialist? I would even incorporate an addiction specialist in this. So this is an actual patient of mine. Um, I love how they put their allergy, the usual 10-10-10. In Vegas, you hit it on the slot machine, but here you don't. This is their pain diary or diagram. From, from an interventional standpoint, I don't have a target. Um, neuromodulation is the best initial starting point. So th does that mean this doesn't require a consultation with an interventional pain physician? I would say I'm happy to take care of this patient, but I may not offer them an injection. I, I may not offer them any interventions, but I will incorporate other specialties. I will call upon a, an addiction specialist. I will call upon uh, a neuropsychologist. Um, I, I will add a, a, a physical therapist to try to uh, de-escalate and try to figure out what their true driving um, diagnosis is. Uh, I may get some further imaging to figure out where their problems are uh, and, and start working at lobbing off, um, I would say, low-lying fruit. They may have a very good reason to have low back pain. They may have the, the, the usual spondylosis um, and from that physical examination, you can tease out certain things that you can whittle away and lob off the low-lying fruit. Once you start treating their back pain, they may become a little bit more confident in what you do, realize that what you have to say might be true, and they shouldn't be on all these three agents, and you can slowly wean them off uh, of the anti-anxiety medications and slowly wean them off the muscle relaxers and then introduce some anti-inflammatories, introduce uh, other non-medication-based options you may not get them off opioids completely, uh, but you put them in a better place than when they started. So overall, chronic pain is a big problem. Uh, 1.5 billion people in the, uh, worldwide. Number one cause of disability. Uh, we have a, a true prescription opioid problem. Uh, we have to always address the underlying cause of their pain. We have to practice evidence-based, patient-centric uh, care and take a multidisciplinary approach. So as, as a biased as I can be, incorporate interventions early, uh, or at least think about them. What are the options? Uh, you you want to uh, incorporate both procedures and medications. Going back to my first title, uh, when is it to refer? I think it's not when is it to refer. It's to we, all, we should all be thinking about both at the same time, not just one. 
So with that, um, I'm going to end a little bit early. So thank you again, and um, happy to take questions. Go ahead, lady in the way back. You had your hand up first. Um, a bit of a pill here, but so you're a patient that was on opioids, benzos, and soma. How long was she on that, and why is she not dead? Good question. Um, so I don't think most patients end up on three on purpose. I think a lot of them just because um, one specialty may not be aware of what the other specialty is doing, but they definitely need a, a primary care physician or a pain physician that's quarterbacking, understanding that they're on multiple agents. Uh, this is th the problem we're dealing with and trying to limit and to, to prevent these combinations, these lethal combinations is what we do. Uh, but providing them with other alternatives. So interventions, uh, behavioral health um, is exactly wh why we're here. But I'm preaching to the choir. You have another question over here? Or, well, I'll get to you. you. You mentioned a lot of uh, interesting specialties, uh, many of which we don't even have in our community. Um, but even if we did, most of my patients are disabled. They're not earning. They do not have uh, commercial health insurance. Very few of the physicians who do these things in bigger centers will accept uh, Medicaid and or Medicaid, Medicare. Um, access to these things like removing the uh, ligament, uh, very, very high level of tertiary specialty uh, without money is not available to these patients. A lot of these interventions uh, we, have no, we, we, we don't know where to send them. So, true, and, and, and I s agree with you in some sense, but the opposite is true actually for those two procedures. They're only approved for Medicare. So 45% of my patients are Medicare patients, uh, and this is a, a fully Medicare-approved procedure. Um, and um, the, the hard part is finding who does this in your community. Uh, for the mild procedure, uh, over 2,000 pain physicians have been trained, for the, for the spacer procedure, um, I'm one of the faculty that trains other physicians. We train about 300 patients, uh, physicians a year uh, to do this. So there, there may be people around you that are doing this. You just may not be, may, may know about it. Uh, so the best thing to do is uh, get on the website, look at you know, these resources that find these physicians that do this, and give them the option of not necessarily having that done, but seeing what, what their options are. Okay. I, I knew you had a question over there earlier. I was curious uh, for the interspinous inter process uh, implant. Are you routinely uh, doing DEXA scans on those Medicare? Very, very good question. Right now, because you're putting uh, something hard against bone, so anybody who is osteoporotic beyond minus 2.5 are considered contraindications. So uh, somebody that has a history of spinous, uh, spinous compression or, or vertebral compression fractures, uh, I would do, and I, I routinely do DEXA scans, yes. Uh, 